Amen. Our reading from God's holy word is taken from Psalm 146. Psalm 146. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we now come with hope and with expectation of hearing from you from your word. Having just listened to Psalm 146 and its beautiful refrains regarding your character, uh, regarding your attributes, your power, and your sustaining grace, we come now into your presence with expectation Uh, looking to behold the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, looking to see the accomplishment of the gospel within these very verses. We would ask you, be mindful of our need. We are deaf in many ways to the truth. We are are blind to our own weaknesses. We are in need right now of your light and of your grace. Come, meet us, build us up and strengthen us in the faith. Fit us for the walk of faith that we might be faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus and in all ways honor him in life and in death for all eternity. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. It's a joy to celebrate Advent with you, church at Cornerstone. What an incredible privilege this is to open up God's Word in this sweet season of the year. And with anticipation, looking into the text of Scripture to find, as it were, the richness of the gospel of His glorious grace. Thousands of years, actually, before the birth of Jesus, this psalm, these writings... Uh, These words given to us, and yet the truth of these words anticipate the reality of what it is that we've come to celebrate this day. 
It was sweet last week gathering here in this sanctuary the Sunday after Thanksgiving, the one right before the beginning of Advent, is always a, a Sunday where travelers are still on the roads coming back from Thanksgiving feasts and we're never quite exactly sure who's going to be here and who's not going to be here because it's just one of those Sundays where folks are out and And one of the things that we decided to do this last year was to take some time in the Sunday school hour to just simply give thanks to the Lord publicly. Quite a few of you were there and you heard the stories of what it is that the Lord has been doing in our midst here at Cornerstone. You heard stories from cancer patients who are fighting not merely with medicines but in faith and are finding with the promises of God's word hope an expectation for how the Lord is continuing to use this awful disease for his good and glory in and through their lives. You heard of heart patients uh, who had surgeries, who this last year's life actually hung in the balance, and the Lord, through uh, the means of medicine, uh, restored them unto health, but also gave voice to his provision and his grace And for how he worked in them a greater degree of glory than they had experienced previously. You heard from an alcoholic who has long battled substance abuse. Who now by God's grace is experiencing sobriety. And is even learning to help others experience the same. You learn from family relationships where stresses and strains and divisions had long been in place, and now the Lord had begun to sew back together and mend the fractures within relationships. There were those who had terrible jobs and now have great jobs based upon God's provision, and we just needed to give him praise. There were those who had great jobs and lost those jobs and still don't know what the Lord is going to do, but with hope and expectation, knowing that the Lord has perfect time and provision for all the things that he does. It was an incredible time. For all of you who were there, there was something of an afterglow that just, uh, just sprung upon us as his people as we recounted the fact that the Lord is in our midst. That the evidences that only he could give were present in the stories and the testimonies that were shared. It was 45 minutes of nonstop testimony and we could have gone for 45 minutes more or better It was clear in all of us that we wished we could go longer to hear the testimonies of the Lord. And I trust in the days to come we will get the chance to hear even more. The Lord is in our midst. And this is a sign of hope. This is a reason to be joyous and to be expectant as we enter into the Advent season together. That the best is indeed yet to come. And that is no mere secular cliche. It is the reality of the promises of God's word. That the future is bright because Jesus is on the throne. And our expectation for that future should be high because he is coming back again to receive us as his glorious bride. Your future today may look shaky on many fronts, but your eternal future is sure and certain in the palm of God's almighty hand. He will accomplish 
that which he has promised and set his heart and mind to. He will redeem you no matter what. When we come into the Advent season, we come with that sort of confidence. It's not a bravado. It's not a pride or a hubris. It's a confidence that's rooted not in us being able to achieve the future that we want, but in knowing that the future that we need has already been secured through the promises and the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a sign of great hope. The fact of the matter is, though, hope is hard to come by. And from day to day, it waxes and wanes in our life. And the psalmist knows that all too clear as he writes to us on this traditional first Sunday of Advent in an Old Testament passage that the church has used for years to anticipate the coming of Jesus. This particular psalm gives us a reason to hope. And it shows us why it is on this first Sunday of Advent we need not look to the world and its present circumstances to gain our cues with regards to how the future should unfold or will unfold. But we have to look to the pages of Scripture. We have to look to the promises of God's Word. And so the psalmist teaches us just two things, really. Two primary things about hope that I think will help us as we set our sights towards this season. He tells us first why we so often lose hope. And he tells us, secondly, the one place where true hope can be found. He tells us why we so often lose hope. And he tells us of the one place where true hope can be found. I want to start with why it is we so often uh, lose hope. You see it there in verses 3 and 4 of the text. Look at it with me. The writer writes, Put not your trust in princes. Uh, nor in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. For when his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. The psalmist knows our tendency all too well. He knows that we are likely to look to rulers or authorities to prime ministers and presidents and other people of power as if they could bring about for us a hopeful future. And despite the fact that history has shown us so many times that on the backs of rulers, the future of the world does not indeed unfold, but it's God who is behind those rulers who truly orchestrates history. It doesn't keep us from very often thinking if we can just elect the right guy or get so-and-so in the right place of power or if we can just simply get the powers that be to move in this direction, then the things which we believe we need and want will just simply fall into place. History teaches us that that's a lie and that all too often that person proves not to be the person we thought them to be And that as good as the person may be, they're never exactly who it is that they should be. And they often don't have the power to accomplish all that we want them to accomplish or think that they should. And very often our hopes are dashed. That this man or this woman ultimately can't be for us what it is that we feel we need. Now, in saying that, I don't mean to suggest, I don't think the psalmist means to suggest when he says, do not trust in princes, uh, 
uh, nor in the Son of Man, that we should never have expectations for rulers. He tells us in Romans chapter 13 that rulers are indeed ministers. He uses the same language as servants. Those who are persons who've been set apart by God to promote the good and to punish the evil. In the scriptures, we see good leaders like Queen Esther, uh, who risked her life before King Ahasuerus, making an appeal for the life of her people who were going to be slaughtered, the Jews, against the wicked plots of Haman. And we see through her bold and righteous risk that the Lord rewarded her efforts with his blessings and his presence. And he routed the plans of Haman and ultimately executed him, punished the evil one, and preserved that which was good. Well, we saw it with King Josiah, who led Israel into a time of national repentance after they returned to the land. Recovering the law of God, implementing a series of spiritual reforms among God's people, and the Lord building, rebuilding the temple and sweeping the nation with a kind of revival through the recovery of the law. Yes, there are kings like Josiah's. There are queens like Esther. There are even in the, the last century men. As some of you maybe have seen the new movie on Winston Churchill, The Darkest Hour. Secular leaders who in a moment where great calamity seems to befall a Western European nation... What are we going to do to face the Nazis and a man like Winston Churchill? Is set apart by the Lord to accomplish certain feats of warfare in order to stymie a foe that no one thought would ever be stopped? Oh, the Lord is behind such actions, uh, even whether they are Christian or non-Christian, men or women. For all power is ultimately derived from the Lord. Uh, Jesus put it this way to Pilate as he stood before him as one who would be executed. And he says, you know, even the power that you have, Pilate, would not be yours if the Lord had not given it to you. But the fact of the matter is, and part of what the psalmist is trying to press in upon us in this moment, is the fact that the best of human leaders are still human. They're still human. And that means several things. It means, first of all, that their power is limited. Uh, they're not in control of all the variables. They're not supreme or sovereign. They can't just say something and everybody salute and always execute. Uh, even when they sometimes put their best efforts forward, they don't get what it is that they're after. Any of you who have led, uh, whether it be a company or whether it be a family, or maybe in the context of a, of a church, or maybe in a nonprofit, if you've served on a board, if you've had influence over another, you know how difficult it is to get people to do things. And sometimes it doesn't matter how much you try, you just don't get the outcome that you want because you're limited in power. Uh, the fact of the matter, too, secondly, is that leaders are mixed in character. They always fall short of the glory of God. The old stories would teach us this. The old stories of Iliad and the Odyssey, or Virgil's Aeneas. 
The great heroes, don't you remember? The ones with most influence and most power, they always had what the literary critics call a tragic flaw. A blight in their character. A faithlessness that winds up leading to their downfall. Even the most faithful leaders at the end of the day are sinners, which means that they will let you down. They don't have enough power to get everything that needs to be done accomplished. They're mixed in character, which means they often have themselves in view rather than the good people that they are meant to serve and the priorities of God's word. They're mixed in character, but thirdly, their rule is temporary. And in fact, that's what the passage actually teaches us in verse 4. Notice what it says. His breath departs, speaking of the sons of men and the princes. He returns to the earth, and on that day, his plans perish. You know, eventually a leader's term expires. His platform is diminished. Or he is removed. If it doesn't happen in his lifetime, he's going to die. You know what that means? You can get exactly the president you think would be the best president ever. And eventually he or she will die. And another one will come. Who won't be as good? Just read history. Just read your Bible. This was always the story of the unfolding of the way in which things have worked. And so the psalmist says to us, put not your trust in princes. They're limited in power. They're mixed in character. Their rule is uh, temporary. And it doesn't matter what kind of authority we're talking about. Our news has been littered lately with terrible events with regards to sexual harassment. We have seen those who are news anchors. We have seen... Athletic directors and coaches, we've seen movie stars and pop stars fall in the midst of these allegations. And a lot of times, people whom we have held, in some cases in high esteem, have wind up falling much lower than we would have ever expected. And maybe you've experienced someone in your life who was an authority who wind up you hearing stories about and allegations that wind up being proved true. And you begin to realize they weren't the person you thought them to be. They were, they were not as bright or as righteous as you expected them to be. And you were shocked when you found out that they were sinners in a grievous way. Sadly, many of us have been so disillusioned by these stories that we wind up giving up. Giving up on leadership entirely or anyone at all. We started by just jumping from one person to the next. Looking to one person to give us leadership. When they failed us, we looked to another. Maybe it started with our parents. The first authority that any of us ever experience. And guess what? They fail you. You have plenty of history and stories from your childhood that can remind you of the fact that your parents aren't perfect. And so maybe then you look to your friends until your friends failed you. Or you look to your first boss who then failed you. But you're going to get a spouse and they were going to do it. No, they failed you. And so then you go, I just got to cast my cares upon a church. And then the church failed you. And then a second church failed you. And so now you're just cynical and mad. And you trust no one. Except yourself. Except yourself fails you. You see, that's what Psalm 146 is leading us to, to despair of trust in man. And not to come to a place where we are cynical or jaded 
about the struggles of earthly leadership and the failed expectations of those whom we expected to be better than they were. No, what the text tells us is that we must look through these leaders in the midst of their failing to a greater and perfect leader. Look at what it says in verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. Blessed is he whose hope is the Lord his God. Now, the question we need to ask is, why is our hope or our desire for blessing need to be transferred from princes or earthly powers or anyone of influence that we might look to to be placed upon God? Well, I think the very three reasons that we looked at a second ago for why we shouldn't trust in princes are the very three reasons why we should trust in God. Because God is absolutely powerful. He is not limited in any way in terms of power. Look at verse 6. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. You don't know a human leader that we can say that about. There is no human leader of which we can say, yeah, he made the Atlantic Ocean. He crafted Mount Everest. He put the galaxies in their place and they orbit at his breath. You don't know of a leader like that because there isn't a human leader like that. Only God has this power. He is the one who is absolute. He is the one who is most powerful, which is why he deserves your trust. But what if he's a bad God? He's not. That's the second point. God is faithful in his, all his perfections. If you look with me at verses 6 through 9, you know what you begin to see? You begin to see a resume for a perfect God, a perfect ruler. Let me show it to you. Look at verse 6. The God of the universe, the God of Jacob in whose hope should be our trust, he keeps faith, verse 6. He's trustworthy. Everything he says he's going to do. He acts justly, verse 7. He executes justice for the oppressed. For any who are experiencing injustice, he executes justice for them. He does everything right. Verse 7, he meets basic needs. He gives food for the hungry. He sees something wrong. He takes care of it. He provides the provision. Verse 7, he grants freedom to those who are in bondage. He sets the prisoners free. He heals those who are hurt. He opens the eyes of the blind. Verse 8, he serves the downcast. He lifts up the bowed down. Verse 8, he rewards the good. He loves the righteous. He protects the foreigner, verse 9. He watches over him who sojourns. He defends the powerless, those who are often exploited, the widows and the orphans, verse 9. And he punishes evildoers. The wicked won't get away with their wickedness. He brings them ultimately to ruin. What the psalmist is saying is everything that you see within the leadership of the world where they're mixed in character, limited in power, and temporary with regards to their duration and rule is absolutely opposite with God. He's absolute in power and notice he's absolutely perfect in all of his righteousness. He gives us a job description for why it is that we should trust in this God because he fulfills everything he says he's going to do and he executes it perfectly. 
Thirdly, he says, God's rule is forever. Notice verse 10. It's how he concludes the psalm. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. There's no fleetingness, no temporality, no here today, no gone tomorrow. He is from everlasting to everlasting. Thou art God. Now this is really important that we are seeing the fact that he is doing a comparison and contrast to worldly leadership and divine leadership. Fallen leadership that is sinful to righteous leadership that is everlasting. He wants us to see beyond the struggles of this world to the world in which God is making where he is absolute rule in perfection and righteousness for all eternity. That's where your hope must be. And he gives it to us in kind of an interesting way. If you look at verse 5, it's the very middle of the text. Something the psalmist often does. Ten verses in the psalm. Psalm, verse 5 is right in the center of the psalm. And guess what? Verse 5 is actually the center message of the psalm. The psalmist regularly does this. He begins verse 1 with praise the Lord. He ends verse 10 with praise the Lord. The whole psalm is to lead us to hallelujah. It's meant to lead us to worship. How will we get to worship? Verse 5, when we learn to trust in God. When we learn the blessing of what it means to rest entirely in God. But I want you to see how he says it because it's noteworthy. And throughout the history of interpretation with Psalm 146, this has been noticed. He said, blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord is God. He mentions the God of Jacob. He mentions the God of Jacob. Now, if you're an Israelite reading Psalm 146, hearing it proclaimed, maybe in the tabernacle or the temple, Jacob would trigger a memory and a story. I mean, this Jacob is the son of Isaac and of Rachel. He's the grandson of Abraham and and Sarah. He's the brother of Esau, one of the core stories in all of the Old Testament. Uh, You remember that Jacob was an opportunist, uh, one who made a great uh, deal, at least for himself, to get the birthright of Esau as he was famished to come in and wanted some stew. Jacob knew that this was a moment where he could capitalize deeply upon the weakness of someone else and look out for his own interests. He was the opposite, in other words, of a faithful leader that we just described. But but the Lord allowed that in his providence to take place, but then we see later he becomes even more deeply deceived. You remember it? He dresses up in Esau's clothing when it came time for the blessing from his, his father Isaac. He even put fur upon his hands because Esau was a hairy man, we're, just, we're told in the scriptures. He, he was one who was not delicate with regards to touch, whereas Jacob, much more was the case. And so he needed to look like, he needed to dress like, and of course Isaac at this point in time is, is not able to see, or at least well enough. To be able to acknowledge that though the voice sounds like Jacob, he smells and feels like Esau and he gives to Jacob his blessing. He gets the birthright blessing from his father Isaac. This makes Esau not very happy as you might well remember. Jacob has to go into fleeing. Esau's after him. He's ready for bloodshed. And in the midst of his fleeing, God comes to Jacob, a man unworthy of the blessing of the Lord. 
He comes to him in grace, and you know what he says to him? He says this in Genesis 28. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring, and your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed in your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever it is that you go. Now, those of you Bible scholars here in this room know that that language is almost verbatim from Genesis 12 and 15. It's the same promise that was given to Abraham. The same promise that was given to his father Isaac is now being given to the grandson, the son, Jacob. And that the lineage, the seed of the promise, the gospel unfolding is now coming from generation to generation, extended not through perfect people, but through sly and often deceitful people like Jacob. God is pleased oftentimes to use brokenness and even the foolishness of men and women like us in order to extend the promise of the gospel. He does that with Jacob. He comes to him in that promise. And you know what we begin to see in the unfolding chapters of Scripture? That God, through his blessing of Jacob, works through his father-in-law Laban. He marries Leah and then Rachel and in some ways gets deceived even by his own father-in-law. But God, through the midst of that, enriches Jacob. He returns him ultimately to Palestine, to the place of of his home. At this point, he now has 12 sons in tow. The 12 sons who would come, the 12 tribes of Israel, who in due time, one of those tribes, the tribe of Judah, there would be a young girl who would come from that tribe hundreds of years later. Her name was Mary. She would find herself with child, but not by any ordinary means. By an extraordinary miracle, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And she had within her womb a new and a better prince. Not like the princes of men. She had within her womb a a real son of man. Not like the other sons of men in whom there is no salvation. No, she had the prince of peace within her womb. She had the Messiah The God-man within her womb. She was, as the scholars would put it, the God-bearer. The Theotokos. The one who held Jesus. The Messiah. The Savior. Who would live up to his name. A name that means deliverer. A name that means redeemer. A a name that comes from the Old Testament name Joshua or Yeshua. Which means God saves. You see, Psalm 146 tells us that we ought not trust in princes or in sons of man because in them there is no salvation, but this is no ordinary prince. And this is no ordinary son of man. This is the God-man in whom there is located the very depths of salvation itself. He is the only one in whom we should trust. So how does he save? Well, let's think about it together as we close. How does Jesus save? Well, he saves because he is absolutely trustworthy. Verse 6. He keeps faith. Jesus came to perfectly fulfill the promises of God's covenant by living a perfect life 
And by dying a substituted death for us on the cross, he is the fulfillment of the promise that is given to Jacob. And thus 2 Timothy 2 says, even though we are faithless, he, speaking of Christ, remains faithful. But it's not just that. Jesus is also our perfect justice. Verse 7. He executes justice for the oppressed. Though he personally would be treated unjustly in the world, Jesus satisfied all the righteous requirements for justice when he died on the cross and received for us the guilty penalty and all its attending punishment. Isaiah 53 says, He was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him fell our chastisement that brought us peace. But it wasn't merely that. Jesus thirdly meets our greatest need. Verse 7. He gives food for the hungry. You know Jesus is the divine manna of the Old Testament. He's described in the New Testament as the bread of life. He is the one who comes down from heaven to feed his people. But more than the substance of yeast and flour. Jesus becomes for us a meal in which his people are to eat. Even the Passover supper and the Lord's supper. Whoever eats and drinks Of my blood and eats of my flesh, it is he who remains with me, John 6, 56. But not just that, Jesus frees us from our greatest bondage. Verse 7, he sets the prisoners free. Jesus sets us free not merely from physical prisons and iron bars, but he sets us free from the prison of sin And the prison of death. Romans 8, 1 through 2. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. From Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. But not just that. Jesus heals our greatest hurts. Look at verse 8. He opens the eyes of the blind. Though Christ did all kinds of miracles, miracles of sight, miracles with regards to those who were lame, miracles of resurrection, no miracle is greater than the fact that by the power of the Holy Spirit, He has opened each and every one of your eyes to behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are indeed in Him. He said, let light shine out of darkness, and that light has shone into our hearts, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But not only that... Jesus lifts us up from our deepest low points. Verse 8, he lifts up those who are bowed down. Jesus is able to lift up the downcast. You know how? Because he became the downcast. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, and then he was raised from the dead. And right now he ascended to the right hand of the Father who is in heavens. So if we humble ourselves like Jesus, he too will lift us up, James 4.10. But not just that, Jesus is our perfect righteousness. Verse 8, he loves the righteous, he says. Jesus is the righteous one of God who took upon himself our unrighteousness. Everything that we've done wrong. And he paid the penalty of it on the cross. So that if we believe in Jesus, he justifies the ungodly. And our faith is counted in righteousness. But not only that, Jesus carries us to our eternal home. Look at verse 9. He watches over the sojourner. That's what we are. We're just pilgrim sojourners in this land. But I want you to know that Jesus left his home and became a sojourner for you. 
He became a sojourner in this world, this broken and fallen world. And he rose again and he's back home with his father. And where he goes, you will go. And he tells us in 2 Corinthians and all through the Gospels that he's gone to prepare a place for us. And he's watching over you, the sojourner, until you get home. But not only that, Jesus adopts you into his family. In verse 9, he upholds the widow and the fatherless. Jesus, the Son of God, lost fellowship with his Father on the cross. Do you remember how he said it? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But through the cross, you know what he was doing? He was drawing us close. He was saving us. He was adopting us into our family. So much so that you're not known by your first name or your last name or the lineage of your family. You're known by the name of Christian. The name of Christ is upon you. You're a son and an heir of the kingdom of God. But not just that. Jesus rescues you from the ruin of sin. Look at verse 9. The way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Listen, this one is scary because you and I are wicked. We are wicked. The way of the wicked is going to be brought to ruin. So how is it that Jesus gives us encouragement through Psalm 146? Well, Jesus lived a perfect life for us. And then he freely took on the ruin of the punishment for us who are wicked. So that when he went to the cross and then was victorious over the grave, he experienced the judgment of God on our behalf. And today, you are not known as those who are marked positionally as wicked, but you are those today who are righteous by virtue of what Jesus has accomplished. And he tells us he loves the righteous. Because he will bring them all the way home. You see, we could go forever and ever thinking about Jesus in Psalm 146. That was 10 ways of thinking about Jesus in Psalm 146. Did I wear you out? Probably wore you out. 10 ways in thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ from Psalm 146. You see, the pivot of the Advent season is to look at the passages of Scripture that the Lord gives us and make a beeline for Jesus. How does he become a son of man, a prince in whom there is salvation? Well, he does it when he becomes man for you. And it's why we will sing this season a thrill of hope. The the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Do you see, can you see through the eyes of faith that color on the horizon right now? Can can you see the the pinks and the reds and the oranges begin to, to show up? Can you see the freshness of the dew on the ground? If you can see it by faith in the face of Jesus Christ, you're seeing a new day dawn. You're seeing the thrill of hope that the weary world rejoices. What Mark would call the very hope of the nations. Friends, over the next four weeks, our goal is to look at the horizon and know that it is not a sunset. It is a sunrise. And that which looks before us in the face of Jesus Christ is our full and certain hope. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what discouragements from a fleshly standpoint are overtaking you. But I do know this. By the light of His glorious grace and the eternal promises of His word... Whatever sense of hopelessness you experience today in the here and now through the eye of sight, by God's grace will be overwhelmed in the weeks to come 
bleeding from hopelessness into hope as you see with the eye of faith. Because when you see with the eye of faith, it is only then that you see. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would give us the hope of the gospel. We ask that you would give us the thrill of hope as we weary ones rejoice, knowing that yonder glorious morn comes. Father, I pray that you would use your word in this season as a means by which to set our face towards the future that you have won. Help us to see not with the eyes of the head, but help us to see with the eyes of the heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.